Sheila Fishman is an award-winning translator of some 200 contemporary novels from Quebec. That translates into about 15 million words, apparently. And she has worked on books from such authors as Rock Carrier, Michel Tremblay, Annie Bear, Marie-Claire Blay, and Jean Chrétien. She has received the Governor General's Literary Award for French to English Translation and the Molson Prize in the Arts. She is a member of the Order of Canada and a Chevalier of the Ordre National du Québec. She lives in Montreal, Quebec, in the Plateau neighborhood. Welcome to the Bibliophile. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So Mordecai Richler wrote about the Plateau. Did you ever translate any of his work? Well, two points. He doesn't write about the Plateau. The part of Montreal that he writes about is now called, I think it's called Mile End. It's a little west of where we are here. Because St. Urbain Street is That's just right. like two blocks over. Yes, it's one block west. Where Mordecai Richler lived was about three blocks north of here. So there's for, a line? <laughs> for purposes of Montreal electoral districts, I would say that he's from um, Myland. Okay. Because when he was growing up, uh, the plateau, the plateau Mont-Royal, as it was known at the time, was um, a poor neighborhood, yeah. as poor as the neighborhood where he grew up. Since then, uh, people have taken advantage of the, uh, the large apartments and the uh, proximity to so many things. And uh, it's just the most wonderful part of Montreal, except mm. for the Jean Talon market, which is my absolute favorite part of the city. Yeah, I love it too. Well, you translated Michel Tremblay's work, quite a bit of it, and he wrote about the plateau, correct? Uh, yes, when Michel Tremblay was living, well, he's back in the plateau now, actually, but when he was growing up, it was kind of poor. There were large French-Canadian or large French-Canadian Catholic families with all kinds of kids, and uh, the apartments tended to be triplexes with lots and lots of rooms, including a double li living room, a salon double, they, they were called. Now they're being lived in by CBC people and writers and yuppies of various kinds. Just looping back to my Mordecai Richler question, you don't go from English to, to French then. You are French to English. Uh, most people, I don't know, 95% maybe of translators work into their first language, their mother tongue. Yeah. Yeah. There are some some people I know who can uh, go in both directions, but mm. it's pretty um, pretty rare. And there's an article that you directed me to, written by Derek Webster, a profile of you in the November 2017 issue of Walrus Magazine. So I just want to quote from that, if I could. In August 1968, a chanteuse Quebecoise named Pauline Julienne was dancing in a pink miniskirt atop a dining room table. F.R. Scott, a poet and eagle-nosed constitutional lawyer, 30 years her senior, 
held her steady. As Julian twirled the gathering of artists, writers, and their spouses, including painter Marion Scott, poet Gerald Godin, and memoirist and occasional pornographer John Glasgow, laughed and cheered. The booze was having its effect. Can you tell me about that party? Oh, God. The party that changed my life and the, the lives of a fair number of people, I think. Because it was held at your house, right? Yes, I lived in, in the house where it, where it took place. In I, North Hadley, Quebec, which is about an hour from east of here, right? I was married to Doug Jones, D.G. Jones at the time, uh, who was a, a poet, a great poet. And... Um, I had been in North Atlee for only a few months. I didn't really know the place or the people. But uh, when I first arrived there, I noticed something that struck me as extremely weird. It was the center for pottery making. Uh, there was a, an important um, studio there where pottery techniques were taught and... Uh, uh, it was one of the sort of many drawing points of uh, of North Hatley. Anyway, there was an exhibition of pots by a few potters with French names and another exhibition by a few potters with English names. North Hatley was a village of 500 people and it struck me as extremely bizarre that there should be this kind of division. I'm Surely these people have things to say to each other. So these were separate ex exhibitions yeah. at separate times throughout the year? Uh, well, one major one during the summer. I was aware, although I hadn't really met them yet, I was aware that there were a certain number of poets around Anglophone and Francophone. And I thought, well, they apparently don't know each other or not all that well because I've been making some inquiries. So why don't I organize poetry reading with everybody, which I did. A um, little bit of social history. There was the uh, SAQ, the uh, Government liquor. liquor Commission, was on strike. So I don't know. There was not even any beer around, and people were thirsty. Mm -hmm. And my little sister, who was approximately four feet ten, came down on the train from Toronto with two huge suitcases that clinked. And she had basically filled them up with whatever she could lay her hands on. This was a most welcome contribution to the party because <laughs> I had everybody over for dinner before the reading. And uh, people started consuming and enjoying it and getting drunk. That sounds about right for a yeah. bunch of poets. Yeah, it was exactly the uh, you know the expected behavior, and everybody yeah. was fine. Uh, then we moved over to a place called the Pottery, which was the place where the pottery lessons were given and the exhibitions were held, and it also contained the living quarters of a woman, a wonderful woman named Mildred Bowdown whose ex-husband was one of the big-name potters in Quebec at, at that time. So we all staggered over to the pottery. <laughs> right. And I had asked our next-door neighbor, who was also a professor at the University of Sherbrooke, 
Canlet, as we call it, comparative Canadian literatures, French and English. And Ron was totally bilingual. And I asked him if he would be so kind as to be the MC. Ron Sutherland. Okay. He's not related to John Sutherland, is no. he? No. He began his introduction, welcome, it's good to see you all, blah, blah, blah. And he started in English. Not the end of the world, I wouldn't have thought, but Pauline Julien was being sort of wicked. Mm. And she started sort of hissing, mm-hmm. en français, en français. And she did and did not mean it, okay? And other voices joined in. They were getting louder. Ron Sutherland was able to tone them down. And the reading proceeded, although there was a certain amount of unwelcome background noise. Ah, so anyway, the evening got kind of rough. Mm. There were some people who stomped out. Mm. Uh, There were some people who didn't speak to some people from the other language group, the other political group. Yeah. Uh, who had been their friends. Well, just because of that, or I guess the the, the alcohol what? Well, I think the up. alcohol loosened tongues, yeah. you know. I don't yeah. I don't mean to make it sound like some um some huge rowdy no. uh hey, this uh, nineteen sixty eight, uh if you remember, that was the year René Lévesque left the Liberal Party and he had I think he had already founded Something called the Mouvement Souveraineté Association. Yeah. Uh, I mean, which, the, the FLQ crisis was only two years later, right? Oh, no. Uh, the FLQ crisis had started in the early 60s. That was when there were mailbox was, bombs. Okay. But the crisis itself was 1970, right? Yeah. The October yeah. crisis started in October of 1970 uh, with a kidnapping eventually another kidnapping and uh, murder. It was a horrible time. So this party, though, it basically opened your eyes, didn't it? It opened my eyes to just how powerfully strong the political feelings were and how powerfully strong the, um, the language question was. I don't know why. I, it didn't bother me much one way or another, Possibly because when I moved to Quebec, my project was to learn to speak French, basically. And uh, I wanted to speak French. I wasn't being uh, pushed by any organization or relatives or anything like that. I just I wanted to be able to speak to the people who I, I lived among. Uh, so I couldn't share in the, uh, you know, the horrified actions and reactions. But I'm just thinking back to some of the people who met for the first time that evening, who became close over the years, Anglo and Franco. And uh, while there were people who stopped speaking to old friends, there were other um, dyads, other couples were formed, let's say. Which is what you wanted. It was exactly what I wanted. So in the end, I was um, I was not unhappy with the evening. Uh, did it spur you then to uh, learn the language and 
start translating? What kind of clicked there? Because you, the first book that you translated was in also in 1970, right? I just uh, take me back a few years. I'd studied French in high school and in university, and I, I got good marks, mm. and um, I loved the language. And of course, uh, in Toronto, I uh, didn't have occasion to speak French in in those days, or even more important, to hear French being spoken outside the classroom, and. It was frustrating when I arrived in Quebec because I did have this, these tools. Mm, this aptitude. It, well, and the aptitude, yeah. And I, I guess it, it was Doug, Doug Jones who suggested to me that if I really wanted to immerse myself in the French language, I, I should try translating something. And I remember asking him, what could I translate? I knew nothing. And I remember that he uh, suggested a, a famous uh, short story by Anne Hébert called Le Torrent, which I read or tried to read, and it was way, way, way beyond my knowledge, my ability. So I, I uh, didn't follow through on that one, but then I met Rob Carrier, and he had just published his first novel, uh, La Guerre Sir, and his wife, who spoke English, Rock didn't really at the time. But uh, Diane told me that it was written in simple French, and I wouldn't have trouble with it. Uh, her idea of simple French <laughs> was not the same as mine. Mm. But I decided to sit down and try to translate it, which I did. And I was happy with the result. Were you still in uh, North Hadley at that time? Yeah, yeah, I was still in North Hadley then. Okay. So I um, I sent it around to three or four people. I really couldn't tell you who they were. I mean, three or four publishers, and nobody was interested. Uh, and then I was really cut off from the uh, Toronto literary scene by then. Bill French, did you know him? Didn't know him, I know of him. He, At the Globe, uh, the yeah, book's editor? Yeah. yeah. He's the person who gave me my first break. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll forget him one then. Of those. No, he was a wonderful man. Mm -hmm. Told me about a, a new press called The House of Anansi. And I sent it to them. And long story short, they accepted it and published it. And it became a bestseller and it was talked about an awful lot because of an accident of timing. It came out just around the time of the October crisis. And uh, at its core, there is a, a very grave misunderstanding between Anglophones and Francophones. And um, a number of columnists, reporters, I don't remember who they all were, um, talked about this book as providing some of the answers to what does Quebec want. And in, in a sense, I guess, I guess it did. What were those answers? Oh, boy, that's a very good question that I'm not sure I have an answer. Quebec wants recognition. Quebec wants the ability to, to live in French, to have its culture recognized and respected, and 
ultimately it, it wanted to be a, an independent country, which, you know, it practically is. They've got, well, I hate got, to, we've got everything. We've got the best of both worlds, really. Yes. But yeah. maybe that's not good enough, I don't know. I don't know, you know, the PQ, the Practice Québécois barely exists anymore. Mm-hmm. It's what about that book, though? Did what what came out of that book? Laguerre. Yeah, Laguerre. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, from that was actually the tenth book that uh, Nancy uh, published. Nancy, yeah. Did you deal with Dennis Lee at all, or? Sure, I, I dealt mainly with Dennis, and some with Dave Godfrey. That must have. Been, what was that like? Oh well, it was terrific. Dave knew French. He had spent a year in at. Aix-en-Provence, lucky man. <laughs> but he he wasn't as involved in this particular book of Nancy's as Dennis was. Mm. And it was Dennis who made or suggested editorial changes. He's renowned for having written copious notes uh, around it, the text. I don't know if that happened with you or not. No, no, it didn't. Because You can't really do that with a translation because, mm-hmm. in a sense, the book already exists. And you so can't, you can't make major changes. You can't veer too far, no. Right. And he didn't know the original, so... Uh, no, Dennis, well, he he's picked up a fair amount of French since then, but at the time. It was ideal for me, actually. I really prefer it when an editor I'm working with doesn't know a word of French, yes. because they can't, because then they can't say, well, you know, you've said reddish blue here, and I think should be bluish red, and uh, you know, sort of imposing their tests, their taste on me, which doesn't make me very happy. Anyway, that it is alas a fact of translation life mm. nowadays, as more and more people become fluent in French, which is a good thing. Getting back to the book itself, is, is, is that the one where he cuts his hand off to escape? Uh, That's right, to escape conscription. Right. And it's the dead of winter. It's extremely cold, so presumably it um, freezes solid practically as it hits the axe. Well, the first scene in the book is Joseph cut, cutting off his hand, and then we see kids playing hockey. With the hand. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Funny and cheerful and mm, tasteful mm. and all that. Yeah. But, yeah, that's how it begins. Well, it, it, it taught me, it, you know, it was grotesque and exaggerated and so forth, but in the, uh, the final or maybe the penultimate scene, when uh, the body of the local boy who was killed in the war is brought back to the village... He's brought back by, uh, I don't know, four or six um, other soldiers. Mm. English soldiers, right? Yeah, they're Anglo and they don't speak a word of French. Mm. And the village is appalled and horrified and uh, the uh, soldiers are befuddled. That, on a larger scale, and, you know, as a sort of comedy, was... I guess the situation for a lot of people, a lot of francophone people who worked who worked in the bush or who worked in factories and were doing rather menial jobs and answering to an Anglo boss 
with whom they couldn't talk, speak. That sort of example has been cited again and again and again. In many cases, it's exactly accurate. In other cases, it's uh, blown up until it makes no sense. But you know, the, the fact remains that for a very long time and until, you know, what, 30 years ago maybe, the floors were swept by Francophone Quebecers and the um, checks were written by Anglophone Quebecers or Canadians. Mm -hmm. And um, it was pretty rough. There was also, along the around the same time and in parallel, the Catholic Church was very powerful in the province of Quebec. Uh, the church made the rules, and uh, people had to follow them. Well, they basically, they really pushed having lots of kids, didn't they? Yep. Even though this wasn't the wish of many, certainly many women. But uh, many women uh, followed what Father had told them to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we hear of, the grotesque, I'm sorry, but grotesquely, large families of eight or ten or more children. And there's a real resentment against the church because of that. It's really interesting. I, I wasn't living in Quebec and I didn't, I wasn't able to read French at, at the time, so my knowledge of it is, is limited. But um, in 1961, when the Liberals under Jean Lesage won the election, turfing out Maurice Duplessis, who, I should add, was under the grip of the, of the church as well, and vice versa. And when he was turf out office, they call it it was an Anglo-journalist who first used the phrase, the Quiet Revolution. And the church was just turfed out of its formerly uh, powerful position. This is a sort of analysis of my own that might be totally wrong, but I don't know. It's what I believe happened. Well, uh, the church was replaced by nationalism, by mm. the the... Independentist uh, party, but now another generation has passed, and as we were saying earlier, I believe that we are virtually independent, and the that that party, the original Independentist party, has practically just fallen off the map. It's been really interesting to live through that. You've probably read more Quebec novels more closely than anyone else on earth. And you read really, really closely because that's what a translator has to do. So you would probably have a better idea of what the quote Quebec identity is, a better idea than anyone. Thank you. That, that's a very generous compliment. I'm not sure if if I can live up to it. Certainly the books that I have translated, I've read very carefully because you have to or you're not doing your job. You can't do your job. There's 
another generation coming along who I don't know and whose work I don't know. There was a review, I think it was in The Globe on, on Saturday on the weekend, mm. of a novel called The Dishwasher yeah. by a, a young guy, I can't remember his name. I, I haven't read his novel, but it's set in a... Uh, sort of greasy spoon type restaurant, as I understand. Don has read it, but I, uh, I, I haven't. But he, he's part of a new uh, uh, generation whose novels tend to have an urban setting. So he's uh, based in Montreal, is he? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, as I say, I can't remember his uh, his name. Yeah. But he's been translated. That novel has been translated by another young guy named Pablo Strauss, uh, who is apparently just a brilliant translator. So what I, you're saying is you don't, you, you certainly did have a good idea of what the, the Quebec identity was, but are you saying that you're losing touch with that, or, or maybe it's changing now? No, it's changing now. Mm -hmm. Sorry to keep harping on, on this, but I believe that it is related to what I consider to be virtually the realization of that dream of independence. I don't know what, I was going to say, I don't know what some of my sovereignist friends would say about that, but then I was trying to think of who my sovereignist friends are, <laughs> and I don't think any of them, any of my politically interested or engaged friends or sovereignists anymore, except Jean-Francois Lisée. <laughs> well, and also Michel Tremblay certainly is. Well, Michel, not so sure. It sure came out when I talked to him. When was that? That was about eight months ago. Isn't that interesting? He uh, spoke strongly in favor of an independent Quebec. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, well. Because at other times in the not-so-distant past, mm. he's talked about, hmm, perhaps the Québécois had its moment. It's time yeah. to move on. Maybe, yeah, or maybe he just feels that he's getting old and it's not his fight to fight, so probably yeah. that's part of it, too. That's probably part of it. And he lives outside Quebec six months of the year, too. Yeah. But, uh, no, we never... Uh, I've never talked with, with him about politics, strangely enough. That, that's very interesting, though. He would be the only one I can think of who um, still has that discour, who still talks that way about uh, independence. You've said that reading a novel in another language brings you together, brings the two nations, if you will, or cultures together. Yes, I think it does. Is that, that part of what motivated you to, to start doing this? It happened along the way. I, you know, as I said earlier, the main reason I started translating or trying to translate was to learn the language. Right. And I really wasn't thinking about publication mm. at the time when I was doing it. Mm -hmm. But... Um, at a certain point, I had read it for the you know the umpteenth time, and I realized that it was a very interesting novel, and it might be of interest to people other than me. And 
you know, that was that was how it began. But the Quebec, Quebec identity that you, you were you were asking me about, uh, when I was you know first exposed, being exposed to it and learning a, a little about it, I um, I guess the people and the writers were um, not that far removed from the country. Native-born Montrealers were, in my circles, if I can put it that way, were a minority. Their references, in many cases, actually, there were references that I could share because I grew up in, not on a farm, but in a very small village in Ontario, mm -hmm. and I didn't have all the things that my francophone friends from the countryside uh, didn't have either. And so it, it was kind of shared past that facilitated uh, getting to know each other. Uh, Jacques Poulin, who's not as well known as I, I wish he were, but uh, he, he's a marvelous, marvelous uh, writer. And it's funny, he grew up in a village not far from where Rob Carrier comes from. And uh, his father, like mine, had a general store in this little village, and we've compared notes, and we, we had the same chores to do in our father's <laughs> door, this kind of thing. Right. And knowing that about him created a kind of um, bond, because we sp spoke the same language and put the same cans of baby food on the, on the shelves on... Sunday afternoon, that kind of thing. But I, I still haven't answered your question about no. the Quebec identity, mm -hmm. have I? No. No. <laughs> well, I think you've oh, talked yeah. about the desire for respect and, uh, and the, the freedom to live in your own language. And, and your own culture. And your own culture. And to, to basically have your own nation. And that seems to some extent to have been answered so that maybe is why we don't have the tension that we used to have. I have to say I have occasionally been appalled at the ignorance of some very well educated Francophone Quebecers, I should say Quebecois, about the the rest of the country and still about Canada, the rest of Canada. There was one who I won't name who told me that she had recently met someone from Newfoundland and they had been talking about history and politics and blah, blah. And she said to me afterwards, do you know, they have a lot of the same problems that we do. They have a lot of the same wishes and hopes that we do. They didn't really want to become part of Canada. And she was, you know, PhD, was just startled. <laughs> That's simply an anecdote. It's not, I'm telling it not because I, I, I think it's representative of anyone or, or any group, but um, I was surprised. Well, I was going to keep this powder dry until the very end, but it brings up the question of the fact that especially when you talk about writers and literature, the total ignorance of 
the English about Quebec literature and Quebec about English literature. They might know Aunt Margaret Atwood, but that's about it. And so my question is, does that disappoint you after you've spent your life trying to change this? I think it is changing. I think it has changed and it continues to change. Yes, Atwood. Yes, Tremblay, Carrier. But more and more are being spread around. I mean, this uh, review that I was talking about, mm. although I can't remember which paper I read it in. Yeah. Was it the Globe? I think it was. I saw a reference okay. to it as well. And I... It was a half-page review. Yeah. And when when does this happen? Well, especially for a, tra- a translation. And a book. translation, yeah. 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 But uh, I have to say, we translators have done a good job of waking up journalists and and publishers to the facts of life in translation. Well, the fact that you want your name on the front cover for a oh, start. Yeah. yeah, that was a hard fight that we won. And then Anansi, who published very good books, decided that having our names on the cover meant that people would see that it was a translation and they wouldn't buy it or read it because they don't like translations. But if they left our names off the cover, then they would read the book and oh, they might look at the title page and see a translator's name. But I mean, it, it was it, it's dishonest mm. and uh, yeah, it's, it's insulting. insulting. Yeah, yeah, very insulting. So it goes. There's only one other Canadian publishing house that I can think of that does that. As a matter of course. That doesn't put a translator. That doesn't refuses yeah. put yeah. the translator's name to that to this day. Okay. It's a relatively new. It's it's a smallish publishing house out of Quebec City, and they publish pretty well only translations, good ones. Many, if not most of them, by the guy who owns the press, and that worries me a little. But uh, his the standards are high, and and the, what they publish is good. But you know, all all these francophone writers presumably write in English. I mean, the uh, the fellow who uh, owns it and runs it and does a lot of the translations is uh, he's a Brit. His name is Peter McCambridge. I don't know if you've. Uh, he's out of Quebec City. Yeah. But he publishes in... In English, in Quebec City. But he doesn't put his name on the front of it, then? No. He just uh, keeps that... No, I assume they're on the title page. I think it has to be. Certainly on the the reverse, on the copyright page, anyway. He might be an interesting person to talk to Mm -hmm. if you're looking for more. Well, actually, what I'm I'm most interested in... and. uh, we can turn to that now. Is uh, is your skill and talent and practice of translation, and you you discuss it in an essay in a book called Luminous Ink. The essay is called Why Luminous Ink is published by Cormorant Press. You say that translation requires obsessiveness and humility. Maybe you could uh, expand on that a bit. Obsessiveness, certainly. You have to be 
so interested in and curious about every word in the text that you're translating. And this can mean that you have to spend a week, two weeks, coming up with an equivalent translation of a, of a word in, or a phrase in the other language. It can mean the same kind of obsessive traveling around the place where the book uh, novel is set. And I, I'm not talking about Sri Lanka or somewhere far away. I'm talking about you know, two neighborhoods over. Yeah, I remember the day I, I walked over to Michel Tremblay's uh, neighborhood, uh, Fabre Street, and the places that he describes in his novels are still there. No, that's great. I was thrilled. Oh, it's it's that kind of obsessiveness. I th- mm. I I think there's also the kind of obsessiveness that can have you. Uh, rewriting a sentence or a paragraph over and over and over until you're finally you you have to let it go, uh, and you, know, you should be feeling fairly satisfied with it by by then. I I'm just going to tell you something that's totally unrelated, and uh, if if you don't mind, can I? I I've just started reading um, the biography of Leonard Cohen by uh, Sylvie Simmons. Mm-hmm. Have you you've read it? No, I haven't. I've picked it up and uh, I've thought hard about reading it, but I haven't. Yeah, actually, I wanted to read it in advance of that great uh, exhibition they had here, yeah. which I uh, really, yes. really liked. The biography is terrific. I, I recommend okay. it highly. But uh, one of his friends, Morton Rosengarten, is interviewed at, at some length, and there are many uh, quotations from him. And uh, early on in the book... He's talking about how Leonard approached his writing. Of This is uh, when he was starting to do music. He says that um, whatever he's learning to play on his guitar and sing, whether it's the Red River Valley or who knows what, he will play it and sing it again and again mm. and again <laughs> for days and days and weeks. It could drive you crazy. And then he goes on to say, and it's the same with his own work. He can spend four months on a lyric because he has to redo it 20,000 times. I think that kind of obsessiveness Mm -hmm. is very healthy, as long as you're not driving your best friend crazy. (laughs) But uh, I, I think that's, that is necessary for the kind of work that that we do. What about the humility? Oh, God, I don't know if I have it or not. You can't launch into a translation with the idea in mind that, oh, this is a piece of cake. Of course I can do it. It'll take me X weeks. I think the humility I'm talking about has to do with the fact that you're going to run into problems, difficulties, uh, dilemmas that you can't solve. You're going to have to call on other people, linguists, the author, somebody else. Can't do that it you on can't your necessarily own. do it on your own. Mm-hmm. I must say, though, that when 
when it's finished and it's a book and it's out there in the world, um, if someone writes about it in the Big Standard or the, the Globe and Mail or, or wherever, it's really nice if the reviewer says something about the translation, especially something complimentary, I must, I must say. Well, listen um, to this. This is, uh, you've heard it before, but it's such a good line. Uh, Gaetan Soucy, mm-hmm. he was asked uh, once, uh, why do you write? And his response was, to have the pleasure of rereading myself a year later in Sheila's translation. That's why he writes. <laughs> oh, That's he, was such a, he was such a wonderful writer and uh, a very dear friend. And mm. he, he died was it five years ago now, I mm. think. I Speaking that. of uh, death and uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, I'll just quote this from your, your essay, Why? Always it is a matter not only of meaning, but equally important of rhythm of the musicality of a sentence it sounds right and you talk about petite musique in my translation i aim to keep that little music so you read your trans i I know i do that when i write material it's like i always read it out loud yes do you always do that yes and you talk about that music, but is it just sort of, uh, and I know what it means to me, but to you, is it, it just, it's, it's difficult to it's, explain. It just has, it just sounds it has right. It sound right, yeah. exactly. It's, okay. <clears throat> excuse me, it's impossible for me anyway to explain what it is, but that, that's exactly it. it. It has to sound right. Later on, you talk about... Um, swear words in French and uh, the fact that the best translation would be no translation at all. Let's say that. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) I wonder what I was talking about. Well, I think it's just very difficult to translate a steed caliste tabernacle. Yeah, the the vessels of the altar has colleague of mine once called yeah it's like you Can't. don't want to translate that it's it's so such a an important <laughs> part of the language isn't yeah. it it's a, an important part of the language an important part of the culture carrier uses it uh, that kind of cursing a lot in his early uh novels you know of the novels i've been reading and translating recently i have to say i might see the odd osti in a dialogue but uh, that kind of cursing that was so popular a generation ago is hardly ever used and you know why? Because using those holy words in another way was an attack on the church spitting in the face of the Pope, if if you want. Yeah. And that's no longer an issue. Isn't that interesting? It just seems to have calmed down. It's yes. not at a boiling point anymore. And that's there's right. no Because some of it, I mean, it's a huge... It's really aggressive. Like, it's motherfucking son of a whore. Yeah. Is, that's what they mean when yeah, they that, use exactly. these religious vessels. Yeah. 
it's just so incongruous, isn't yes. it? And it's so disrespectful, which, as you say, is what what it's they were expressing. So you'd say that the sort of the anger has been taken out of the atmosphere. That... It seems to me, right. although you've just told me that Michel Trombet was speaking quite firmly. Yeah, I might. I'm going to have to listen. To, I I can send you that interview. Actually, I'd very much like to hear that. Yeah, because as I say, it just really struck me that he was still angry. I, that's what I sensed. Yeah. Now I might have misread it, so I'll need to go back and listen to it again. Well, uh, he he has different personalities. <laughs> that's right. He, well, we all do. Yeah. We all do. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he may have been putting on a show for the English audience, perhaps. It's, who knows? It's possible. Yeah. We we all do that. Yes. I'm different with you than I am with my wife or my yes. daughters or, you know, same with you, obviously. Yes. So we are a whole bunch of different personalities mm. within... Speaking of humility, uh, I like uh, the anecdote, my anecdote at the very beginning of that essay, Me and the Rocket. Oh, yes. Him asking why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and in fact, we haven't mentioned the hockey sweater, which is oh, probably... please, let's not. Let's not, okay. But it's still, it's the most famous rock carrier uh, um, work. It's, if you don't mind me correcting you, yeah. it's pronounced Carrier. Carrier, sorry, yeah. yeah. It's okay, everyone does that. Yeah. Yeah, I was just being English. <laughs> <laughs> that you're, that, it's legal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I don't want to insult anyone or... Or or get it wrong either. No, I'm uh, obsessive. Yeah. Also. <laughs> okay, so you think the explanation for this aggressive swearing and connecting it with the sacred is is really just a, a real animosity toward the church itself, which has sort of expended itself. I uh, uh, can't remember where he says this, but I did read. Uh, uh, comment. I think it was by Rob Carrier, but it might have been someone else. Someone wrote that the people who used that kind of uh, ecclesiastical vocabulary as curses were the first Quebec revolutionaries. And um, I think that's reasonable. Well, they were the ones that were most directly affected by the the, the policies of the church and, yeah, and most uh, harmed by it. Yeah. Mm. Jean Chrétien comes from a family of, I think, 14 something children. Something like that. Something He's one of the youngest, like yeah. Translating him was really fun. Oh, was it? Don and I did it together. Okay. And uh, it, we worked together well, but... Uh, Chrétien himself was just a sweetheart. He would I, he only had Don's phone number, okay. so he tended to call him two or three times a week. They well, have you read such and such an anecdote? Did you like it? Was it funny? Did your wife like it? <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he was wanting to please them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of your uh, your husband, Don Winkler, he used to work at the NFB. That's right. But in more recent years, he too is an award-winning translator. Oh, he's a brilliant translator. Mm. He's won three GGs, 
two of his translations have been shortlisted for the Giller. Okay, so my question is, what differentiates your translations from his translations? That's a very good question. I would hope that the uh, end uh, result would be the same. I think we both have the same concern for, let's say, accuracy and call it music. Our tastes in reading are quite similar. We don't read all the same books, but many. His taste in material to translate is quite different from mine. First of all, he translates poetry, which I don't. Yeah. I think you have to a whole be a world. poet, yeah. uh, which I'm not. But the, the actual work itself, I'm trying to get, the, mm. if, there's, if there's something that's, that differentiates. The, I think you, you're saying the goal is the same, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you want, you want to preserve as many traces of the original voice as possible. Absolutely. Without writing uh, dialect uh, English. He works faster than I do, interestingly. I do an awful lot more research than he does. This could mean that he's far better informed about a lot of things than I am. But I think it's... It's on his his head, you mean? Well, no, I I think it means that he's not quite as interested in certain things as, as I am, and so he... He doesn't feel he has to probe it because, you know, what's there on the page is is what matters. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is probably one of the things that makes him faster. But no, he's uh, you know he's a real polymath. Uh, he also pu- has translated a number of um, difficult works of nonfiction, which I haven't done for for quite a while. Quite mm-hmm. simply because I'm lazy, I don't want to do, have to do all that kind of scholarly research. It, you know, I'm not a scholar, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was closer to my university years, I guess it uh, didn't disturb me so much, but I, I, I don't want to live that way now, mm-hmm. frankly. We meant, I mentioned voice. How do you capture voice? Oh, you try some words, and you try some others, <laughs> and you go back to the first. On my computer monitor at the moment, I have, I think, three stickies. They're all attempts to write a description of something in nature. I'm giving myself four words to do it. And um, they keep changing, but I guess that's, that's kind of what you do when you're attempting to capture a voice. It's just trial and error, you think? Trial and error, mm-hmm. and speaking the words out loud. And 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 what? Uh, obviously, hearing a voice in the original. That's, oh yes. uh, 
Yes. And but what different kind of voices are there? There's. Uh... Well, I could say, take the voice of Anne Bear and the voice of Gaetan Soucy, and it's as if they're writing from different planets. What's different about the voices? Is one kind of light and gay and happy, and the other more strident and angry and loud? Or Anne Bear's novels. Not talking about her poetry now, which I think is quite different, but I don't talk about poetry. Uh, her her novels are often very dark, but they're not melodramatic, and her prose is very sparing. And that's one of the reasons I like translating her work so much, because, you know, in a perfect world, if I were ever a writer, I would want to write with as few words as possible, mm. which is why I have those stickies on my monitor. Gaetan Soucy, on the other hand, writes about, creates a lot of violence, a lot of horrifying violence. Mm. His way of writing is a very, for the most part, we're not talking about the little girl who's too fond of messages, that's something else. Yeah. But his novels are written in a very uh, classic, uh, even elegant French. But he uses that kind of, those tools, to create something so very different from from any other Quebec writer I know or know, know of. The little girl who was too fond of matches is really, really interesting. It was... a sensation in French because it begins for the first about half of the novel. It's a first person narration and um, uh, for the first half of the novel the narrator's voice is male. It's very easy to suggest that in French because it's a gendered language and so the pronouns and the agreement of the adjectives and so forth tell you. You are reading away, and uh, this voice is telling you, you know, this about my body and that about my body, and you start thinking, um, I think this is a girl talking, and eventually she comes clean, and she is a girl. But the brilliant way in which he develops that in French is breathtaking. In English, it was a hell of a job because of course it's not gendered <laughs> and I had to avoid uh, as, as much as I could I had to keep the secret un until yes, a yes. certain point in, mm. in the novel mm. oh my sorry I no no that's I, interesting I've been uh, thinking about him a lot recently because uh, it's around this time of year that he died okay speaking of um great work, and this might put you on the spot here a bit, but who's the best? Who's the most interesting, who's the most entertaining Quebecois writer that you've ever translated so that I can go out and read him or her? That's not as difficult as, as you um, probably expect. I think that Michel Tremblay is one of the world's great writers. And I will go further and say that he could be 
Canada's second Nobel Prize. His work is that rich and deep and broad and unique. Uh, there are, of all the other hmm. uh, writer, writers I've translated, there, there are many who are really, really fine writers. I think they, they all are, or I, I couldn't translate them if I didn't feel that they were mm. really fine. Worthy of all the effort you put into it. Well, yeah. I have to live inside the head of whoever I'm translating, and I want it to be preferably comfortable, but at the very least it has to be interesting. Yeah. I have to learn things. That's exactly the definition of what I want when I'm reading something. Well, my friend Phil Stratford used to say that translation was the deepest form of, of reading. I, I quote him all the time. I don't know if I did. You in did. That you, you quoted him to end it off, and you said oh. that you'd said that. You said that translating a book is by far the most detailed and profound and intimate way of reading it. And then you say, I translate for that reason and for the pleasure of going deeply into a text, a sentence, a paragraph, a chapter, a book. Searching for what lies behind what lies behind the words. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure I do either. It's a phrase that came to me one day. I mean, literally, I can tell you where I was standing when it hit me in the brain. You know, if I wanted to be helpful, I guess I would say that, well, it's something like that kind of delving that I've been talking about mm. all the time. It's, yeah, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful quote, beautiful Thank phrase. You. Thank you. I've used it a lot. <laughs> Um, just finally, although I'm not sure I want to leave it on this note, but uh, you were very empathetic and sympathetic to the separatist cause, but you uh, at one point came to the realization that they weren't really focused on the little person that needed to be taken into account, and that's why you didn't vote to separate. I think this is a reference to the last referendum, the referendum in 1995. I think I did vote PQ a couple of times. I don't really remember. Mm. I'm a lifelong NDP, and I usually vote NDP. I just so, uh, wanted to touch on this concept of Pure Lane, which is not mm -hmm. really around anymore. There's much more of a, a kind of a North American outlook, a worldliness yeah. Um, we use we still use the word pure then, uh, ironically, but um, among friends mm, as a joke. Yeah, but mm. what explains this Bill C twenty one? Oh God, I have no idea. Like, what, well, I do what have in the, an idea. What in the Quebec identity? Because apparently it's quite widely supported. What is it that allows them to trample on human and religious rights. It is very popular among the misguided individuals who voted for Francois Legault. 
A lot of his supporters uh, come from rural ridings. They've probably never seen a hijab or a kippah in their lives, but they're afraid of them. Is this reflected in Quebec literature that you translate at all? Not that I've encountered, no. I mean, basically, Bill 21, I believe, was formulated and put out there and passed and is now law to hold on to those rural voters. It's his majority. So it's not part of the Quebec identity then? I don't believe so. It's not typical. I don't know. I... I don't watch television, although we've got that big thing there. We don't turn it on. Mm. And I think a lot of people see TV news reports about um, this attack or that disaster. and Or immigrants coming in. Oh, God, yes. Immigrants who are not respecting our language and our religion, even though we've left the church, and who have their own sets of belief that we don't understand, and they're scary. I, I think think, that's I it. think this comes from fear, not from hatred. Okay. But I'm again, not it an doesn't, expert. Yeah, okay. I'm, and it doesn't really show itself in what you, your work at all. On the contrary, recently, in the past couple of years, I've read, I don't know, four or five uh, new novels by younger uh, writers uh, in, in which central characters have been Jewish or Muslim. And the authors of these books have obviously made an effort to become deeply familiar with um, these, uh, these cultures, these foreign cultures, as as far as literary excellence is concerned, some are better than others. But it's there, you know, this curiosity about les autres. Mm-hmm. Les autres used to be, get them away from me. Yeah. But uh, I think we, <laughs> autres, uh, are becoming interesting. Well, it's kind of conflicting message here because les autres seems to be behind the... Or con- or fear of them is behind this bill. I know, I know. Yeah. But they're geographically, as well as ideologically, so far from here. You'd said something about my sympathizing with the separatist cause and, and so forth. Yeah. During the campaign before the last referendum, I did all the French to English translation. For the separatists? For the we people, I called them. Mm -hmm. I have friends who told me, they didn't quite say that I was a traitor, but they were very unhappy to know that I was, what I was doing was making some writing available to people who couldn't read it in the original. Mm -hmm. You're educating people. Well, sharing knowledge. Proselytizing, you were... No, I was saying, look, here's what they're saying. Yeah. It's up to you. And as the campaign proceeded, uh, things were going really well for them. And it seemed a foregone conclusion that the we was going to win. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, well, hell. You know, it's going to happen. It might happen in six months. 
uh, might happen in two weeks, but let's just get on with it, do it and get on with it. And so I was going to vote we. A few days before the election, I had to go down to the um, the we headquarters on Papineau Street to translate something that was top secret. And uh, I did it, and then I was walking home. It was a cold, blustery day. And I passed a church that had a soup kitchen with people lined up waiting for it to open. And what they were serving at this soup kitchen to these people, mostly old, and God knows what they'd had to eat that day, they were serving them a cup of cocoa. And that was it. By the time I got home, I was pretty bad shape. And a couple of days later was the vote. And I've been thinking about this so much. Going over mentally all this stuff that I'd translated, some that I'd even helped write. And there was nothing in any of that that made any kind of reference to those people. So I said to myself, no, I can't do it. So I voted no, and uh, oh, it was such a close call. <laughs> yeah, your one vote could have really did help, didn't it? Well, Made a difference. Yeah, it, uh, yeah for once, mm-hmm. single votes did. Yeah. But um, now there's not going to be another referendum. Francois Legault has promised that there won't be. Mm. But I think that... Mm, sort of energy that went into the sovereignist movement, I think it's pretty well fizzled. There is a newer, newish political party. It's quite left. Uh, It's sovereignist. Any of the people I know who are really who were really strong independentists, tend to be talking about voting for this party. Just to finish off, it it seems to me that uh, the whole of your career has been spent trying to get the two cultures to understand each other better and to get together as opposed to separating. You say that's fair? Yes. Yes, that's fair. I don't believe that, we'll use the old-fashioned term, which you don't use anymore. The separatists, they weren't demons, you know? Mm -hmm. They didn't want to set up bombs in the Edmonton Mall. They wanted what they thought they wanted at a certain historical period. I was in sympathy. I I wasn't supporting them, but I sympathized with their wishes and Mm. hopes. I'm very glad that that it didn't happen, and I'm I'm pretty happy that we don't hear much about that option anymore. Canada is a fantastically wonderful country. I can't imagine living anywhere else, but I also can't imagine living anywhere but Montreal. I I couldn't live 
in a place, a city, a town, what have you, that didn't have French. It's become one of my basic needs. This from a girl that was born in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, well, I had no say in that. <laughs> my parents took me away when I was only two. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I always uh, loved studying French, although I didn't major in university. But I had one teacher in particular in my first year of French at University College. His name is David Hain. He was a scholar. He wrote scholarly books. Um, and when I was you know, inducted into the Order of Canada, uh, he was too. Uh. And, I mean, not, there was no relationship between the two, obviously. But I was so thrilled. Well, first I was thrilled to see him again after all those years. And then I was shocked to realize that he should have had it 25 years ago and, and hadn't. That, um, I mean, he, he was the one of the teachers who stirred me on this path. It's ending up in the Patumo Royale. Well, the, the Order of Canada, that's what it's there for, is to, is to recognize the, the, uh, the kind of work that you've done throughout your career. And uh, mm -hmm. thank you thank for you. that, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for taking the time to ask me some very good questions. I've enjoyed meeting you and sitting around this table, and uh, I hope I didn't make too many gaffes. Not at all. I hope I might have said a few things that are amusing because I like to entertain. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks very much again. Thank you. I've been speaking with uh, Sheila Fishman, who is an award-winning translator of some 200 contemporary novels from Quebec.